today's reading is Judges 11, uh, 1 to 11, and then we skip over to 28 to 40. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when, they, when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to, the, back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commanded over them and he repeated all of his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Next one is 28 to 40. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message, of Jephthah, the message Jephthah sent him. The spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jethar made a vow to the Lord, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jethar went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated twenty towns from Aroah to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel Keraman. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jethar returned to his home in Mizpah, he should come out to meet who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing in the sound of timbrels. She was an only child, except for except for her he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down, and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of, our, of your enemies and the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she, could, she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jethar the Gileadite. Well, some uh, terrible things have been done in God's name, haven't they? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was at a conference and I bought a book I'm really looking forward to reading called Bullies and Saints. And it's uh, written by a Christian guy, John Dixon. You might have heard of him. Um, and here's just one of the excerpts from the title of the book or the introductory comments. The sceptics, he, John, concludes, are right. Even a cursory look at the history of Christians reveals dark things therein. Violence, bigotry, genocide, war, inquisition, oppression, imperialism, racism, corruption, greed, power, abuse. For centuries and even today, Christians have been amongst the worst bullies you could ever imagine. The Crusades, we've probably all heard of them, and pictures like this, they're pretty common. We see them around, often in uh, cinema, in sort of novels, things, but it's quite shocking, isn't it, once you realise, uh, that's right, that, that symbol on his chest, on his shield, is the cross. Uh, I saw a little um, comment uh, under one of these pictures today that said, um, uh, they came, they pillaged, uh, they left. And it was just a little sort of, uh, or they conquered. 
Uh, it, was, it was conquering, conquest in Jesus' name. We have a right to this land. We have a right to this treasure. Uh, and they would kill for it. Uh, slavery in America, the enslavement of people of, from African descent. Uh, I don't know if you realise, but there's a, there were a whole bunch of Christians on both sides of, of the slavery war, the civil war that in a lot of parts was around slavery, and Christians justifying the, the enslavement of people descended from Africans from the Bible. Uh, there were books written around it, and they're, they're mostly critical now. But Christians really thought, yeah, this is what God wants. This is what God wants. How about Jephthah, <laughs> the story we just read? who seems to think God would prefer he keep a promise than break his promise and, and free his daughter from this foolish oath to sacrifice whoever came out of his door. It makes me ask, as I, as I look across these, it makes me ask, how do people get to the point where they feel that this is what God wants? As you read the story of Jephthah, uh, as you look at the Crusades, as you look at uh, that that racial enslavement how do people get to the point where as an individual and as a culture you think yeah this is what God wants this is God's desire for us now at this point looking out for us it's easy for us to see these are all terribly wrong and sort of left here scratching our head thinking well that could never happen to me that could never happen to me I could never see things so wrongly well, a few years ago, I went to a conference. Uh, this guy, Mike Rater, was preaching. Uh, he used to be a, a missionary in Pakistan uh, before he uh, came back to Australia and, and took up some more preaching work. Uh, and he was a principal of a Bible college. And he, he, he told a story uh, of how regularly amongst the Bible college students in their final exams, uh, they would catch the students cheating on their final exams to, to get better mark. Uh, and I'm pretty sure I heard that story when I was at Bible college, and I think, wow, isn't that, isn't that horrible? Isn't that horrendous? Uh, and and for, in Pakistan, they have, a, they have an honour-shame culture. Uh, so in Pakistan, if you, pretty well the worst thing you could do would be to bring dishonour on your family. Uh, and publicly, not doing well in ex an exam would be to bring great dishonour to your family. So culturally, that's a, that's a huge thing. And so they, sort of as a culture and these individual Christians, sort of came to the internal decision, it would be better, it would be more God-honouring, it would be better for me to not dishonour my family and do well on this exam than it would be to, you know, keep my slate clean and not cheat. And I can remember thinking, wow, how, how do they get to that point? How could they read the Bible and think that truth doesn't matter, that cheating's okay, that it's imp more important than dishonouring your family? Well, he carried on his story, because that wasn't the end of it. He carried on his story to say that the, the Pakistani Christians were equally horrified at Mike Rater's lifestyle. Uh, now, if you've known missionaries, people who've lived overseas, you'll know they're, they're mostly pretty thrifty types. Uh, they mostly aren't extravagant by Australian standards, and Mike's no exception. But the Pakistani Christians were horrified at Mike's lifestyle. And they'd say things like, how can these Australian Christians get to a point where they thought that that was okay with God? They look at the amount that Australian Christians, like Mike, spend on clothes, on cars, on holidays, on paying someone else to cook their food. And they'd say, are they reading the same Bible as us? How can they read God's word and think that that level of worshipping money is okay? How can these Australian Christians get to a point where they thought that was okay? Where they thought that was what God wanted them to do? Now, no doubt about it. I hope you're, you're clear. No doubt about it. There are things in our lives, in our Australian evangelical Christian culture, that we are so blind to that we think are okay with God. We think they're okay with God. Maybe even he wants us to do these things. And we're wrong. Isn't that terrifying? Because we probably don't even know what they are. Well, today, as we look at the Jephthah cycle in Judges, uh, we're going to be asking this, this big question, how can one, how can I end up misunderstanding God so terribly that I think he will delight 
in something that he actually despises. How do, how do we get to the point where I can misunderstand God so terribly that I think he'll delight in something he actually despises? Um, and, and what can we do to identify where we're going wrong? I want to take that next step further and how we can correct it. So as we step through uh, these chapters, uh, first we're going to see where they went wrong. Uh, it's pretty obvious, but we'll work through it. Uh, then we're going to see where they got it right. Uh, and finally, we'll, we'll wrap up with, with just four lessons from Jephthah. Um, so I'm going to pray for us now before we jump into this, because it's, it's pretty heavy going and serious stuff for us. Please join me. Father God, we pray that as uh, we open your word together uh, tonight, that you will speak to us, that you will uh, reveal to us our hidden sins, as the psalm writer prays. We pray that uh, you will help us in a way to strip away the lenses that we've got on and, and put aside the assumptions that we've made about who you are and what you want. Uh, and please help us to, to see who you are and what you want uh, and how we can truly delight you. Please help us to see that, to get a clearer picture of you and be moved to follow you more closely. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, now, before we do jump in, uh, I need to say, like, what I'm going to say in the next 30 minutes are the tip of the iceberg. And we're looking at three chapters of Judges today. There's a whole bunch of content in there. Uh, and, and just in, when I uh, break up the preaching uh, program, when I think, well, how are we going to preach through these books of the Bible? Uh, I have to make a decision. Do we preach through one verse at a time or do I preach whole books at a time or somewhere in the middle? And it's tricky and there's advantages to both. And today we're going to feel, uh, we're going to feel, oh, we missed a lot of that. We missed a lot of chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12. Uh, but I made that decision because it allows us to get the whole story of Jephthah in one slab. So it allows us to zoom back and get the whole picture, but we are going to miss, miss some details. So I really want to encourage you, if you're not in a home group, that's a great chance you'll get into it there. And also there's no replacement for just looking and reading and meditating on the Bible yourself. So please be in the Bible. Uh, next term, we'll get a bit of relief from that. We're into Romans and we're going to slow right down and do sort of two or three chapter, chap, sermons in every chapter in Romans. So that'll be a bit of a change. But also a reminder, we do have a question time uh, straight after the service. Uh, I don't know whose number that is. Is that your number, Jason? It's Rob's. Uh, so don't text that number. Uh, you'll have to ask them in person. Or if you're watching on YouTube and you've got my number, you can text it out. Sorry about that. Uh, but... Pull on your, think about your questions as you go. If there's something came up in home group, I don't get to ask it at the end. Okay, so where did they go wrong in We Jump? Well, you might be not so surprised to see a meat illustration right at the start. Uh, and, and this is going to be a running theme through the sermon. I think, I think it's really helpful. They went wrong because they chose the wrong marinade. And not they chose, you know, sweet and sour uh, over barbecue. Um, but, but what marinade does to meat, if you're familiar with marinade, is, is it permeates. So any marinade recipe you read will say, soak in the marinade for at least two hours, ideally overnight, you know, because it wants to get in, you want to immerse it, it wants to saturate, you want it to get right into all the little bits. Um, and once you've marinated your meat, uh, you, you can taste the meat, but every other flavour comes through the marinade, doesn't it? You, you might be able to taste whether it's a good bit of beef or a bad bit of beef, but the marinade is going to infect, it's going to change every other flavour that comes through. And that's what the Israelites did in these chapters. They didn't marinate their food, they actually marinated themselves. So have a look there in chapter 10, we didn't read this. So this is the start of this cycle of Jephthah. Uh, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So we've just had a rescue, uh, they've just been sort of okay for a little while, again they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And this time they served the Baals, the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Uh, this is a change so far. Normally in Judges, they just serve the Baals or the Ashtoreths. They still run away from God. They stop serving God, start serving someone else. But this time, they just, they just ordered everything on the menu. Uh, they went to town on these other gods and on the culture that came with these other gods. Uh, they didn't just taste them. It's not like, oh, I wonder what that tastes like, a little sample. They, they dove in. <laughs> they rolled around. They stayed there. They, 
They marinated themselves in this culture and in these religions. That, that's the impression you're meant to get from this. That they just said, I, I want more of this. I want more of these other gods, more of these other gods. And it got into them. It got into them, just like a marinade gets into a bit of meat. It got into them. And what we're going to see now very quickly is how it affected them. We're going to fly through these chapters, but just really see how their saturation in the religion and culture of these gods affected what they did. And it meant they thought that they could treat God badly and get away with it. We see this in chapter 10. If you go back through and read chapter 10 and chapter 11 alongside each other, I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, chapter 10 is a record of the way Israel treat God, and chapter 11 is a record of the way Israel, the same people, treat Jephthah. And it's a parallel uh, as you step through it. First of all, they treat God really badly. They say, we don't want you. They kick him out of the land. They say, we don't want to serve you. We'll serve all these other gods. We read it in the, in the reading, didn't we? What do they do to Jephthah? They say, we don't want you. You're the son of a prostitute. You're not legitimate. They kicked him out. So that's, they, they treated God badly. They treat Jephthah really badly. And then when they get in trouble, they come running, don't they? They get in trouble. They kind of ignore the fact they treated God so badly. Oh, God, can you save us? Same things happens with Jephthah. They get in trouble. They come running to Jephthah. Oh, hey, can you save us? We're in trouble now. They think that they can treat God like that. They think that they can treat God badly and get away with it. That they can keep coming back to him. They think he's a bit of a softy. They think he'll just forgive it. No worries. Off we go. And that's, that's the way it goes. And the reason they got this wrong was because of that marinade. Uh, Their marination in these other religions, it, it made them think that this was a normal way to treat a deity. Because these other religions, uh, these other gods, you could ignore them for a whole bunch of the year. Um, so some of these were the fertility gods. Um, so for most of the year, you could just basically ignore the asterisks. Uh, but coming up to sowing season when you need to plant your wheat and you have given no thought to the Asherahs for the whole year, I, I better come back. I've ignored you, I've treated you badly for the whole year, but as long as I make a couple of sacrifices now, we'll be sweet, I'll get a good crop because you're a fertility god. And they thought they could treat God exactly the same way. They'd become infected with these other religions, with this other culture. Uh, we see it again, this infection in chapter 11, uh, where they think that they can find their own saviours. So yes, they cry out to God, but they don't wait for God to raise up a deliverer. Uh, you'll notice in this cycle, if you read through it, it doesn't say, and God raised up Jephthah, like he does with some of the other judges. He, they choose him. They don't wait for God to save them. They say, we'll find our own saviour, thank you very much, because that's what the other nations do. And they go and look for someone who fits the bill. They say, well, what do we want in a saviour? Well, we want someone who's a mighty warrior. Okay, Jeff does that. We want someone who can gather a band of, you know, soldiers around him. Well, we read Jephthah gathered a band of you know, ruthless scoundrels, the, the, the Bible says, around him. They think, oh, he's the kind of guy we want as a saviour. They ignore his character. They ignore his godliness. They ignore his compassion. They ignore his leadership skills. And they really pay for it. But they think, yeah, we can raise up. We can choose and find our own saviour. And they do that because that's what the other nations do. Uh, they think they can bargain with God. You might have noticed that in the, in the Bible reading, uh, that God was already with Jephthah. He was helping him raise an army. Uh, but Jephthah thought, you know what, I need, to, I need to do a bit of bargaining here. I need to make sure that I win this battle. So I'll, I'll, I'll do some bargaining. I'll, I'll find something that I think is as or more valuable than me winning this battle, and I'll, I'll offer it. I'll do a bit of bargaining, and so twist God's arm. And if I put enough uh, value on the table, God will just have to do what I want. And that's the way all these other religions operate. Uh, if you don't make enough sacrifices, they believe, your crops won't grow, your cattle won't get in, in calf. Um, you, you won't have healthy children. That was the, that's how you deal with these other gods. You make sacrifices, you give valuable things to bargain, to, to twist the God's arm. And that's what Jephthah thought he, thought he would do. Uh, but horrendously, we see that Jephthah actually offers to sacrifice his child. 
Now, you might not have realised that's what he was saying there in verse 30, but this is the vow he makes. Uh, He makes a vow to the Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Uh, Now, a lot of people reading this will go, oh, well, he must have met his dog or something, you know, because that's the one who's always keen to see you when you get to the front door, the dog. Israelites didn't have dogs, not in the house. They weren't pets like that. Uh, that, That wasn't part of that culture. And a dog, really, is that all you're offering, Jephthah? You're asking to win a mighty battle and be proclaimed the hero of Gilead? That's not the kind of sacrifice, that's not the kind of offer. And, yeah, sometimes sheep and cattle lived in ancient Israelite homes, but they generally don't come out to meet you when you get home. It's almost certain that Jephthah has in mind a human sacrifice at this point. Probably not his daughter. I don't know who he was hoping would come out, one of the servants. But it's almost certain he had in mind a human sacrifice. Because he was asking a lot, wasn't he? I want to win this battle. It's really important. Overwhelming odds. They've been oppressing us for 18 years, God. I want to win this battle. So I've got to offer something pretty valuable. What's more valuable than a human life? And then he does it. He does it. He, he gets home, gives his daughter two months leave, and then did to her as he had vowed. He sacrifices his child. How did he get to the point where he thought this is what God would want? How did he get to that point where he thought, yeah, that, that's a good idea. That's what God will delight in. That will be a valuable offering to make God bend to my will. Well, well, he, he got there by marinating, didn't he? That was what all the other gods delighted in. That was the, you, you want to make a sacrifice to the other gods? Yeah, you can, you can sacrifice a pig or a chicken or a dove or something, but you want to get really in your God's good books? You give the thing that's most valuable to you. And God was so clear, God was so clear in his word that this is not how he operates. I think you read this story and you think, how could it get more tragic Well, it gets more tragic if you actually flick back to Leviticus, to some of the laws God gives for his people. And read this, I'll read it out, Leviticus 5 verse 4. If anyone thoughtlessly takes an oath to do anything, whether good or evil, in any matter one might carelessly swear about, even though they're unaware of it, but then they learn of it and realise their guilt, they must confess in what way they've sinned, And as a penalty for the sins they've committed, they must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for them for their sin. There there is explicit provision for this. When you have thoughtlessly made an oath to do good or evil, and then you realise, oh, I made an oath. I shouldn't have. I was thoughtless. There's a provision for getting out of a thoughtless oath. God doesn't want you to keep any oath that's thoughtless or foolish. He's made provision. You just, you just got to sacrifice an animal, go to the priests, confess that you've sinned. It was sinful to be that thoughtless. Confess that you've sinned. Be humble. And you're released from it. It's so clear. God knows people make mistakes. People say foolish things all the time. I do it regularly. If you know me, you'll know that. That's... that's how we are hopefully we'll get better at that we'll get rain on our tongues but there's forgiveness for this Jephthah did this though and when it happens you confess it and the vow to sacrifice a human is so clearly a sin well according to the old testament it's about as evil as you can get Uh, passages like Leviticus uh, 18 and chapter 20 they make it really clear in fact in chapter 20 verse 4 and 5 I'll read this last sentence Um, so God's talking about if if someone sacrifices a child in your community you must put them to death because this is a capital punishment you can't you can't let that kind of attitude persist in community but this is where it gets serious If the members of the community close their eyes when that man sacrifices one of his children to Molech, and if they fail to put him to death, I myself will set my face against him as my family and cut them off from their their people together with all who follow. There's there's a 
almost a curse, a recognition that the community is responsible for making sure this happens. Like closing your eyes is saying, I'm just going to pretend not to see that. I'm not going to do what, I meant to, what I'm meant to do. This is, this is really serious and really, really clear. And in the context of the book of Judges, this book where the big lesson uh, that, of the book of Judges is that they keep getting sucked back into the worshipping the gods of the people they failed to drive out. The first couple of chapters of Judges were all about that. Rob preached those sermons showing us again and again the people came in, they were meant to drive out this people completely. This land was meant to be a clean slate, but they failed to drive out pockets of these other people, these other religions, where practices like child sacrifice were still being done. And in the context of that, Deuteronomy, another book of law, is especially uh, poignant. Uh, chapter 18, Deuteronomy, when you enter the land of the Lord is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire. And then if you go down to the end, at end of chapter uh, verse 12, because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. Deuteronomy lists child sacrifice as one of the primary reasons why these nations were driven out, why, why, a, why they were judged to be not worthy of this land. They had to be wiped out. And the devastating part of Judges, of this story particularly, is not only have some of the people fallen into this horrific sin, but their leader, their judge. In the book of Judges, the word judge means saviour. Their saviour is leading the people in sacrificing his child. He, sh he should have been wiped out. That, by Israelite law, Jephthah did this, they should have killed him. They should have said, that, that, that's not to be done in Israel. But they didn't. And that's because as a culture and as an individual, they were marinated. They were soaked. They were infused with these other cultures and other gods. So they thought, yeah, this is the kind of thing God will delight in. That saturation in the culture and in God's, uh, of his time also led Jephthah to take terrible revenge. Now, we didn't read chapter 12, but in chapter 12, Ephraim, another one of the tribes, have a bit of an argument with Jephthah. Uh, they exchange uh, words, a bunch of threats, and it basically boils down to an insult that the Ephraimites say to the Gileadites. Here's the insult. Might not sound very harsh to you. The Gileadites, uh, sorry, the insult. Uh, the Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, you Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. So basically they said, uh, you're not a real tribe. You're not a real tribe. Uh, you, you've just sort of come off the edge of the tribe. So it's a, but ultimately it's a bit of a nasty thing to say but it's just an insult. And in response, Jephthah and the Gileadites struck them down. And when we read struck them down, they had a battle, but normally in a battle when you've won, you, you say, okay, we've won, that's enough, especially when it's against your own people. Here's how they finished up the battle. Uh, whenever a survivor from Ephraim, a survivor came to the fords, the Gileadites had taken the fords, they got him to say a little... Um, it's like a tongue twister that obviously the Ephraimites couldn't pronounce properly to work out, are you from Ephraim? And they slaughtered them. These are the survivors sort of dribbling back across the Jordan, just trying to get home to their family. They've been, they've been whooped in this battle and they just want to get home to their family. And they're slaughtered by the fords of the Jordan. 42,000 Ephraimites were slaughtered at the Jordan over an insult. That was, that was revenge. That's what revenge looks like. It's, it's horrible. It's horrible. Uh, and, and Jephthah was so soaked in the other cultures that he'd forgotten that's not what God says. Uh, Leviticus, God says this, don't seek revenge, don't bear a grudge against anyone in your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I'm the Lord. You might remember sort of in the back of your mind all those laws in the Old Testament that say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which to us sounds a bit harsh, but in that culture was gracious because it was meant to stop escalating revenge. Because that's what would happen in all these cultures. 
someone would insult my sister, so I would go and punch them, and then their big brother would come and kill me, and then my dad would come and wipe out their family. Blood feuds, that's how they start, escalating revenge. And so God said, hey, none of that. That's, 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 that's not how it happens. We have a court system, and what we'll do is we'll just make sure it's fair. Don't take revenge, certainly don't escalate it. But Jephthah was so saturated, so marinated in his culture that basically off the back of an insult, he basically exterminated the tribe of Ephraim, fellow Israelites. They got a lot wrong in these chapters, didn't they? Uh, And it all seems to stem from the beginning of chapter 10. They become so saturated, so infused, so marinated in their culture that they, they couldn't see the godly way ahead. So what did they get right? And this is a quicker one because there's not a whole bunch there. Now, you might be surprised that there's a point like this at all in this sermon. You read that chapter and you think, well, there's nothing, nothing right here, surely. But one of the most surprising parts of Judges actually comes from the New Testament. So if I was asking you, uh, can you, I'm doing a highlights reel of the Old Testament, and I want you to pick three of the best judges to put in my highlights reel. Uh, so you're probably going to pick someone like, you know, Deborah. This wise woman who was brave, she listened to God. Or maybe Ehud, uh, who despite being left-handed, was, was bold and saved the Israelites from Eglon. Or Othniel, we don't know much about him, but we know he wasn't bad. Well, come with me to the highlights, really, of the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 11 from verse 32. What more shall I say? Do I, have, I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouth of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. The world was not worthy of them. Now, if you weren't familiar with Jephthah and his story, you might not bat an eyelid at that. Jephthah? The world was not worthy of them? Like heroes of the Bible? What is he doing here? Now it makes me go back and read this chunk of Hebrews more carefully because what is, what is it saying about these people? Uh, well, at the core of this passage in Hebrews is faith. Faith. And Jephthah, for all his failings, at a cru- few crucial moments, he did trust God. Read back through it and you'll see at crucial moments he proclaimed that the Lord would deliver him. He trusted God and he went into battle against overwhelming odds to deliver Israel from an enemy who had oppressed them for 18 years. So he, he did have faith. Yes, he was misguided, he was arrogant, he was even evil. But for all that, in the moments that he truly trusted, that he truly acted in faith, He was used mightily to deliver God's people. But still, you might be saying, well, maybe, Liam, but surely there's better people you could pick for a list of heroes to inspire us. Because that's kind of what Hebrews does, isn't it? It's meant to inspire you with heroes. We read on chapter 12, verse 1, next verse. Uh, since we are, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Now, these are the portraits on the walls of your mighty ancestors. Yeah, be like them. They were brave. They were strong. They were great. Is, is that what Hebrews is doing? I sort of always assumed it was. It was like a, come on, you can do it. These people were great. You can be great too. But that doesn't really work when we read the list of names. Gideon, he did okay in the beginning, but he ended up building an idol and leading Israel to worship it. Barak, well, he was just a chicken. Uh, He didn't want to go. He needed Deborah to to come with him. Samson, well, we'll get to him next week, but uh, little heads up, he's, he's not the hero of the kids' Bible stories. And Jephthah, what? Uh, You'd think it gets better after that. David, well, remember what King David did when he impregnated one of his citizens who was married to someone else? 
He sent her husband to battle, put him on the front line so he'd be murdered, so he wouldn't be discovered. That's King David. Uh, and Samuel, you might not know much about Samuel. He was pretty good. But when he got to the end of his life, he tried to start a dynasty. He put his own sons in charge. And his sons, uh, and I quote, turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. This is not a list of heroes to say, be like them. Be like them. They're weak, sinful failures. I heard something a couple of weeks ago that really resonated. Uh, I used to think that this was a list of good people to inspire bad people like me to be a bit better. But it's actually a list of bad people who God called and used in different ways to attract me to Jesus. It's not a list of good people say be like them because they're so good. It's a list of bad people who through faith were called, used, in some ways accepted by God. See again chapter 12. We'll read the next verses. Uh, th- uh, we're surrounded by these witnesses. Throw off everything that entangles uh, and, we'll, and let us run, the, run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And goes on to describe him. That's what we're meant to do. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer or author, and the perfecter, the sustainer, the finisher. Your faith, who started it, who found it, who established it, who authored it? Jesus. And who's going to finish it? Who's going to persevere with it? Who's going to bring it to completion? Well, it's not you. Jesus. That's the point of Hebrews. It points us to Jesus. Because we, like these other people of the Old Testament, didn't earn our place in God's family. Not chosen for our talents or godliness. Faith in Jesus is the highlight. We're meant to read this and think, well, well, if Jesus called, saved and used even people like Jephthah, maybe he can save, use and call even someone like me. Uh, It's only a glimmer of sort of right things here in Judges. It's just a spark of faith. But by the time you get to Hebrews, some thousand years later, faith is a bonfire that draws us into the promises, the acceptance, the cleansing, the usefulness. No matter where you've been, what you've done, or what sort of person you were. So what are our lessons from Jephthah? We've got four. They're all pretty quick. Um... There's heaps more lessons here, so maybe you can pull them up in question time. Um, The first lesson is to discover what the Lord wants. I don't know what Jephthah said to God about the sacrifice for his daughter. I don't know the conversation that happened. I can only imagine uh, Jephthah said something like, see how much I love you. See how much I love you. I gave what was most valuable. Or see what an upright, see what a good man I am. I keep my promises. I keep my vows, even when it costs me my daughter. You should be thanking me. I wonder if God said something like there has been a terrible misunderstanding. You've got this so wrong. You've terribly misunderstood what I want. Later on the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophet Micah these words. With what shall I come before the Lord? As in, what what does God want? With what shall I come down and bow before the exalted God? Shall I come with him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. That could have been written for Jephthah. Maybe it was. Do you delight in burnt offerings and my firstborn? No. Justice, mercy, humility. Which brings us to the big clash between what God really wants and what our culture says God wants. See, our culture thinks that God wants you to earn your way. 
Uh, we see that in our culture with things like uh, the, the prominent attitudes that are lifted up are, hey, hey I'm, a, I'm a self-funded retiree. Woo! I've done it myself. I got there. I don't depend on anyone for anything. Our culture thinks that that's the kind of people God wants, the kind of people who say, yeah, I can, I can do it, God. I can deserve to be here. I can earn my way in. I can be valuable to you and your mission. You do well to sign me up, God. You want me on your team. Our culture likes to earn our place, to be self-made, and has almost an allergic reaction to mercy. Don't give me any of your mercy. It's not what I want. Our culture says you've got to hold your head up, be proud of who you are. You've got nothing to apologise for. And the Bible says, no, that is not how this works. Come to Jesus. We can't be good enough. God doesn't want or need what we've got to offer. We've got to love mercy. Walk in humility, which is at the core of what it means to come to Jesus in faith. That's the gospel. You're not coming saying, hey, God, I'm a good person. I should be in your family. That, that's not the Christian faith. It's coming to the foot of the cross saying, Jesus, you went to the cross for me because I failed, because I rebelled, because I incurred a debt that I couldn't pay. And I have nothing to ask for but mercy, not justice, mercy. That's hum humility, that's humbleness. So that's, that's lesson one, what the Lord wants. Justice, mercy, humility, faith. Lesson two, and I don't think we could not have that here, is to repent of bad commitments. Now, sometimes through a misguided sense of commitment, we can push on in bad commitments. A friend of mine, uh, a pastor, uh, was interacting with a guy um, who came to him and said, hey, I've got a problem, pastor. It's a bit awkward. Uh, I really like this girl at church, but she's an Asian, and I swore I would never date an Asian. Now, you might be thinking, I can't believe that Liam just said that. I'm thinking, I can't believe he said that to my friend. That's a true story. He said, I've got a problem. I like her, but I swore I made a promise that I would never date an Asian. Now, my friend, he was at that point thinking, how do I protect my church from this guy? There's so many things going on. Uh, racism, an inappropriate view of relationships. But for the point of this passage... I want to highlight his misguided sense of obligation to a commitment he'd made. Uh, now, I want to sort of take this by his shoulders, shake him, and say something like, you need to repent of that commitment, not keep it. You don't need to keep that. You need to repent. That was sinful. You should never have said that. Repent of it. Don't keep it. Now, that's easy for us to see in this culture for us to look in at that and think how ridiculous but for us we can do things just as ridiculous so easily uh, what are the things what are the bad commitments I've made that I need to repent of well I want to help you diagnose them I want to help us diagnose them anything that starts with I know this isn't where I should be but Oh, I, I know it's not really where I should be spiritually or where I should be financially or where I should be spending my time, but... Oh, but I feel trapped. I can't get out of it. I've made a commitment. God wouldn't want me to waste all that time, that money, that security. Maybe you've signed up for a sporting commitment and it's affecting church. Maybe you borrowed too much on your house or rented too expensive a place. And, oh, sorry, I can't be generous. I, I shouldn't have made the commitment, but I did. I've got to honour it now. Maybe you've overcommitted to hours at work or something you're volunteering in and now have no quiet time or Bible reading slipped or you're not doing it with the kids if you've got them. Or one that's come up a couple of times with people I've chatted to is a car loan. They've borrowed money on this nice new car that they wanted and now go, oh, I shouldn't have done that because that, that, that bill comes in every month. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that, but I'm trapped. I'm trapped and it would it'd be, it'd just be too much of a financial hit for me to sell it now. I'd lose money. Well, of course there's going to be a cost. <laughs> there's always a cost to something, but I wanted to encourage us to think, 
What do you gain? Or another way of saying it, what are the costs if you don't repent of that thing? If, if you're doing the overtime at work, you say, oh, there's a cost to me not doing that overtime. I'll, I'll be still paying off my house in 40 years. Well, what's the cost if you don't? Maybe your kids won't get the Bible every day. They won't have modelled to them that Jesus comes first. And that might affect where they end up with Jesus. Uh, there's a whole bunch of costs. Don't, don't say it will cost me too much to repent of this commitment. Even if it's 2000 even if it's $100,000, what's 100 grand in the face of eternity? In the face of your relationship with Jesus? What would it cost not to repent of it? You might feel trapped, but you're probably not. You're probably not. Uh, now, I do have to say, if this comes to marriage, and there's a few other issues like this, where you've realised, wow, I didn't make a good decision there. Repenting doesn't look like leaving that relationship. It's a very complex thing, uh, but repenting of saying, I married the wrong person, I married someone who's not a Christian, the Bible was clear, I've realised I shouldn't have done that now. Repenting doesn't mean ending that relationship. It actually means pushing more into it, loving that person, being a better spouse. Uh, but come see me if you've got questions about that stuff after. Um, but enough to say you can, if you, if you can recognise that sinful decision, you need to work out how to repent of it. Uh, third, uh, recognise that we've been saturated in our culture. Now you might have heard me talk about the pendulum before. Uh, very rarely as an individual, as a culture, do you walk down the middle on the right line. Usually we're swinging from one side to the other. We see this often across generations. Uh, it's, you know, one end of the, the one generation will do this and the other, next generation says, I'm never going to be like my parents and they swing way to the other side and then back again. And we sort of rarely land in the middle. Um, but it's a helpful thing to recognise what side of the pendulum am I on? So things to think about, leisure, holidays, hobbies, that's a saturation in our culture. Our culture says you need these things. You need leisure. You need holidays. You need luxury. Now, I want to encourage you. The Bible has some stuff to say that. We can enjoy the good gifts of God. But if it's a pendulum, on one side is overindulging and the other side is what they call, uh, is it asceticism? I never know which word it is, but it's the barefoot monk who only eats dry crusts and water, you know, which side of the pendulum are we on? We're not even close to the middle, are we? We're, we're on the luxury side. So just have a think about it. We are saturated in our culture. We will think uh, God approves of stuff that he really does not. And it's because that marinade has got into us. Uh, other than that, uh, something that came up in home group this week, friendships, often we're, we're too gentle in sharing Jesus. We think, well, I don't, want to, I don't want to hurt my friends. I don't want to tell them they're wrong. I don't want to be that pushy Christian. Maybe culture's got into us that says, hey, everyone can believe what they want. Everyone's right. So that's, that's the pendulum. And, but how do you cure this? How do you cure this? Well, back to the marinade. Choose your marinade wisely. Now, we cannot be prepared for every decision. I remember going into Bible college thinking... Uh, you'll laugh at that, thinking I would get all the answers in the next three years and I'd spend the next 40 years giving out those answers that I'd already got. I went, ah, ha, ha, as if that's right. Uh, we can't prepare ourselves for every decision. We could sit down for 20 years and run through all the possible situations you'd come up with in life and work out what's the right response in each of those situations and you'd still probably stumble into one in the first week uh, that we hadn't thought of. So you can't work out all the details. But what you can do is choose what you've been soaking in, what you've been soaking in, what you've been marinating in, that will affect your decisions. Uh, they're not so popular anymore. Anyone have one of those, what would Jesus do, wristbands or a shirt? You know, what would Jesus do? It's, it's not an unhelpful question. It's useless if you don't know what Jesus would do. If you assume that he wants something that he really doesn't. Psalm 1, the book of the Psalms, this beautiful book of prayers, starts with this. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit with the company of mockers. They don't marinate in that stuff. 
but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on that law day and night, not just for two hours before it goes on the barbecue, day and night, over and over again, extended periods. That person, what are they like? A tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. That tree has got its roots in the stream of God's word. It's always sort of on tap. And so when a situation comes up, because they're so marinated in God's word and God's character and who he is, everything's affected by that marinade and instincts start to change. Reactions start to change. We think, well, what would God want in this situation? And we kind of know intrinsically because we've been in God's word so much. That's our marinade. And then you flick to confirm it because you know your Bible, you know where to go. You go. Yeah, that is what God wants. Jephthah did not do this. And it cost him his daughter. He led a nation into child sacrifice and genocide. Because he didn't know Leviticus 5, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 18. He hadn't been in God's word. He'd been down at the local Baal shrine. I want to encourage us to marinate in God's word. Uh, we've just had a delivery from Kurong this week. We've got the new journaling Bibles for the next two books we're looking at. Um, so Romans next term, John the term after that. Grab them. They're only $7.50 each. I got a bulk bargain on them. Um, grab one. Marinate in it. Spend some time in it. Make some notes. Ask some questions. Do that before we get into it and then bring them with you to church and go, oh, what more can I get in here? Uh, read your Bible. Make time for that every day. But it's not just Bible time. It's, it's more than that. There's more time that we're soaking in life. I would encourage you to think, what times in my week can I switch out some of our culture marinade time and switch in some godly marinade time? Uh, for me, it's some time when I'm sitting on my tractor, uh, driving around my paddock. I've discovered I can put my ear pods in and earmuffs over the top so I can hear. Uh, and I really like audio books, often it's novels. I'm like, great, I've got like five or six hours, you know, away while I can listen. Uh, I've worked hard recently especially, at swapping out some of those, just, just novels, just enjoyment, to listen to some podcasts, some Christian podcasts, Ask Pastor John or Tim Keller's sermons, to listen to some audio Bible. I'm going to listen to the New Testament. I've got, I've got time. I'm going to do some marinating. What in? I know you've got your, your crime, uh, crime podcasts and whatever else you like listening to, and then it's not a bad thing, but I want to encourage you what, how much time are you spending marinating in that and how much time are you spending marinating in God's word? Uh, something else we've done recently is uh, we've started watching, a, it's effect effectively an updated Jesus film called The Chosen with the kids. We were watching in the evenings uh, a little uh, show called Avatar, which is a show about a little superhero cartoon. And the kids like that and I like that. And we, we've swapped out some of that to watch a bit more of this Bible stuff. And it's starting to change the tone of my life. It's, it's affecting the marinade. Now, I'm not saying it has to be all of that and none of the other. We can't live in this world without engaging at all. But let's think more of that, more of godly marinade and less of the world. And that is the only way we're going to be able to grow into the kind of person that Jesus is. Uh, now, I've gone over time, as I often do, so we won't have question time right now, but you can see me over dinner because I'd love to answer some of your questions then. Let's go for singing. Thanks, guys.